Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Chris, welcome to the War Room. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Uh, I've, been, I've been excited about this one for since uh, they reached out to, to get you on the show. I, I remember hearing of this story, kind of the, the different iterations. Uh, the name obviously rings a bell. Um, but you're the author here. So let's unpack the book. What got you involved and, and why now? Absolutely. So so the book is Unexpected, uh, the backstory of finding Elizabeth Smart and growing up in the culture of an American religion. Uh, and, and as your viewers or viewers and listeners might remember, uh, about 21 years ago, Elizabeth Smart was abducted during the middle of the night uh, from her bedroom from a man uh, yielding a knife. Uh, her sister was sleeping next to her on the bed and witnessed the whole thing and feigned sleep. And this led to uh, probably the most highly publicized and largest search for a missing child since the Lindbergh baby in 1932. So Glenn revisited that. My role in it was I uh, found myself as their publicist, but it was a much larger role than, than just working on communications. I became a close confidant to the family, working with them uh, with communicating publicly, but also the investigation and, and, and figuring out a lot of things. And, and this book explains kind of some of the how those things intersected in a lot of details um, as it relates to the investigation and how the media played a role in, in finding her that, that really haven't been talked about or are new 20 years later. Okay. And so I'm born in 85 for, for your perspective, the listeners probably know that by this point, but so this is a childhood memory. Um, I remember stories like John Benet Ramsey as well, other stories that were kind of going on. Now, looking back at high, I remember obviously O.J. Simpson, some, some of those big kind of headline stories that would have uh, captivated my childhood. Growing up, hearing those stories, you, 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 you're you kind of led rightfully so, I think, on some level to think, obviously, it's a family, it's someone close nearby. You know, how could this happen in a house? You know, all those questions that are kind of being asked and what I've learned doing this podcast and talking to kind of people is that that when it is the true stranger, it's really hard to solve. It's really hard to figure it out unless they make a blunder. And so you you said that you know there's there's a, a a guy with a knife in the house. It's like oh okay, that that almost seems unbelievable, but until it's not, it's really true. And in fact, Ernie Allen, who was uh, the executive director of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, had the opportunity to speak with him a few times while Elizabeth was missing. And, and asked him, and he said, there's just no case like this. You just don't have children taken from their, their own rooms in a small community. And, and she lived in a very affluent neighborhood. So these things just don't happen. And as a result of that, I think it, it really hit a nerve with all of us. Yeah, and I, I don't want to diminish uh, kidnappings in general, um, but I, I've looked into the FBI stats. And if you look into those kidnappings at large, there's there's just not that many outside of, you know, maybe dad took the kid or the kid was just missing for a long period of time. And so there's really, when you boil it down to true, what parents fear of, there's really not that many overall. Um, and so it, it is a, it is a fear we all have as parents, rightfully so, but it's probably one that we're overly fearful of relative to the risk. Um, you know, I, Ryan, I agree with you on that. The statistics are it's about a hundred stranger abductions a year. And so if you do the math on that, I'm not sure how many kids, there's got to be more than 100 million children in the United States. So right. that's that's like one in a million. Uh, and I have to keep that in mind with my own children. I mean, I think we 
naturally are, are, are nervous and, 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 and very protective of our kids and, and often rob them of those opportunities to, to learn and, and have those experiences that, that they grow from because we're such helicopter parents. But so, yeah, it does. I mean, I think it's important to set that. I've always felt like, you know, let's not create a lot of fear here, uh, you know, talking about it. And, and, and in the same vein, you know, it's a miraculous story as well. Okay. So what is the connection here um, in the book? The book title is The Backstory of Finding Elizabeth Smart and Growing Up in the Culture of an American Religion. So how does that play into the larger narrative? Absolutely. So um, the the American religion refers to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly uh, known as the Mormon Church. And, and uh, Elizabeth's family being uh, members of, of the Latter-day Saint Church, as well as, as myself, uh, it, it played a significant role with how, um, you know, just to give a little bit of context, uh, the Latter-day Saint Church is organized in, in wards that are geographical in nature. So you have to attend uh, with your own neighborhood at, at a church at a given time. You can't pick where and, and when you go. So it makes the neighborhoods very closely tight-knit and also very well organized. So when she was abducted, uh, the, the members of the church and, and, the, and the leadership of the church uh, organized and responded very quickly. And, and that was part of the response and, and, and a number of elements, you know, service being a major component. Growing up in the religion, uh, you're, you're taught to serve from a very young age. So, you know, 10,000 people coming out to search for her that first week, you know, that probably doesn't happen in a lot of places, uh, but it was a- almost an afterthought in Salt Lake City. And I don't know if these, I don't know the statistics on kidnap and then likelihood of death afterwards, but I suspect of those hundred that are abducted, it's probably the longer you go, the less likely to recover the child because of death. How is it from their perspective, the families, the searchers wanting to believe the child is alive, but also knowing in the back of your head, statistically speaking, it's grim. You know, it it is. And I believe it's at 24 hours, you know, 24, 48 and 72 hours, you know, after 72 hours, it's, it's a very, very small percentage. Uh, that that come home. What was interesting in this is, you know, Ed Smart, Elizabeth's father, uh, just never gave up hope. And I remember about seven months in, um, so this is a couple of months before Elizabeth was rescued. Uh, Ed and I were in New York doing some media, and and late at night he said, "Hey, I got to talk. We we I need to talk to you." And I'm like, "All right." So we got together, and he said, he looked at me, and he said, "Chris, people think I'm crazy, but she's alive and she's out there. I just know it." I just know it. Are we doing everything we can to find her? And little experiences like that, it just, they're, they're, you know, something touches your gut. And um, it, you know, you, when you feel that, when you feel that father's intuition coming into play and, and, and many others associated with it, you second guess it. And at the same time, there, there's something that, that really compels you to move forward. And, and again, how long was she gone from, from the, the, the full period of time? So it was nine and a half months. She was abducted in June of 2002 and came back March 12th, 20, 20 years here pretty quick. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so nine months. Um, what is the process from the outside thinking the most likely scenario, family member, member did it, and then being able to convince yourself, um, yes, I am willing to go all in um, on the narrative that the parents in this case are not involved because you want to believe the parents, but you, again, the statistics on this case are opposite of that. Um, so h- how do you go through that process of feeling comfortable uh, that the parents aren't involved? 
So I, I really hit that crossroads about a week after the abduction. And the story initially had been very positive about the search and, and all the people coming out and the response. Uh, and, and then one night I got, I was tipped off by uh, a, a reporter with one of the national networks that the Salt Lake Tribune, the local daily uh, here in Salt Lake, was about to publish a story implicating the uh, family in the abduction. And, you know, I started to question, like, am I putting myself in harm's way? You know, who, who are these people? And I, I called the member of the extended family. I think something important to note is that both Ed and Lois Smart had very large families and uh, most of the aunts and uncles were involved. I had 10, 12 spokespeople on any given day. So I called the person I just trusted the most. And I said, level with me. You know, is it possible that anyone could have done this? And she said, no. And I, I tell students this a lot, wherever it is, I think you have to trust your gut. You really have to listen and trust your gut. And at that point, I really felt strongly um, that, that, you know, that they were okay. It was interesting when that news broke, uh, Jeannie Haberman, who's the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist who wrote the first story about the smart case, she uh, characterized the situation as igniting a firestorm that uh, rivaled the John Benet Ramsey case. So, uh, you know, it, it became very serious. And, and, and there was a, a moment where we had to make a decision and had to go to work very quickly in, in, in responding to that situation. Yeah, because I can think of situations and I won't get into the national stories now, but I, there's a story in particular where um, a person was was killed uh, in, in a less than ideal scenario. And his friends and colleagues came out and said, no, this is not, this is not the person we know. You know, he, we didn't know him to be this. And then as you found out quite quickly, they all knew him to be like that. But they were covering for him because of how his death you know, changed the public perception of him. And, and so that is, you know, when you, when you think about these scenarios, that is the, the real crux is who who knows these people, who will go to bat for them. Um, because you do find out in death or in tragic situations Sometimes there is something beneath the cover and sometimes there's not. And, and it's, it's, it's a very tough position to put yourself into because, um, you know, I know friends, if their kid went missing, I would die on the hill that they didn't take it. Right. And so, but then there's some friends I don't know that well, and I, I can't die on that hill. So um, it, it has to be a tough spot to be willing to die on the hill and to get that verification. Okay. We're ready to move forward. With that in mind, you, you get the, okay, I'm going all in a weekend. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to back this story. Um, how then, you, you said the father's intuition, his, his kind of leadership, if you will, pushes you forward. How do you go through the process of questioning everything that, that's coming to you guys, but also trusting the process, if you will? Like, okay, did we think about this? Yes, we did. But so th there's a duality there that you have to explore, it seems. You know, one of the great elements of writing the book was kind of slowing everything down. Everything happened at such a frenetic pace uh, and, and decisions had to be made so quickly. It, it's easy in these types of cases we see in the national media to play armchair quarterback. When you're in them, it, there are so many things happening and, and what you're hearing about publicly is just a small fraction of it. So things were constantly evolving uh, and, and it was, you know, it was a 20 hour a day job for the first several weeks, just trying to keep up with what's happening, trying to understand What's going on with the investigation? What's being reported in the media? What we're hearing from the public? Uh, what the you know what law enforcement's saying, and 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 then what different developments are are occurring, and how do we work to communicate? You know, with those, I, I don't necessarily know like we were trying to control you know the message, but how do we help tell the story, and and how do we help the family's position be represented appropriately? Did you feel that law enforcement was with you 
on the parents and and um, that they were bought in that the parents were involved? Uh, you know, difficult to say. You know, there was a lot of tension with law enforcement. I, I had a very symbiotic relationship. I worked very closely. Uh, I knew that that was in the best interest of the family to understand where law enforcement was coming from and to try to to work with them at the same time, you know, it became a very, a, a huge challenge in this case. The, the first person who uh, was named as a suspect, a man named Richard Reese, who had uh, been a handyman and had worked with the smart family uh, for a period of time. The police um, became absolutely focused on him. I, you know, recently you had uh, Ray Ragusa on and he talked about the tribalism in, in law enforcement and how that uh, until recently, uh, you know, that that's been commonplace. And, and we saw that for sure. What we saw there, though, was more herd mentality. You know, they were absolutely convinced it was Richard Reese and they wouldn't listen to anything else. And the family had information that was contrary to that. And so this became a real struggle. I write a fair amount about this um, over six, seven months of, of the case where they're 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 going to battle because, you know, and, and maybe the getting a little bit deeper into that. Elizabeth's sister, who witnessed the, the crime when they initially came out with the information about it being Reese, said he didn't do it. It wasn't him. This was privately. And that was passed on to law enforcement. They said she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's confused. And then a few months later, she just had an epiphany out of nowhere and remembered the voice. She didn't actually get a good look at the person, but she heard the voice and she's, the voice was familiar. And one day she just said it was this man, Emmanuel, who worked on our house. This was in October so about um, four months after Elizabeth was abducted, she remembers this and law enforcement does not want this information coming out over hell or high water. And the family finally had to defy them uh, three or four months later to, to come forward with this. And it ended up being Emmanuel was Brian David Mitchell, the man who had abducted Elizabeth. So there was a lot of tension working back and forth with the police as far as it relates to I know your question. Um, more specifically, Ryan is about you know the family, and I, they were constantly looking at the family. They're, they're, I don't think they ever give you the you know that anybody is uh, not a suspect or, or that you know there's no way they're involved. I mean, they, they keep an open mind until the very end. Yeah, the um, other day we we're recording this, the podcast that came out talks about two girls who um, vanished in South Dakota, and there's a period of time in which they focus on this this uh, farm they they won't you know despite the fact that there's very little evidence in that the cops actually released evidence to make it look as if they had found bones but they're chicken bones so they weren't even real human bones but the report said bones so the public would start to think oh yeah they've got the person they got the person um and, and it's a troubling trend that we see so on one hand I'm fine with the cops saying it's it's statistically most probable the family did it therefore we never want to fully eliminate them because they could have covered it up I'm cool with that. I'm also okay with him saying this, this Reese fellow, we think that he did and explore that, but there needs to be an element to these things to which someone can come and, and, and start to ask the questions to poke holes, because if you want a true justice system, then you want justice and justice means that you have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And it feels like this story and other stories, there's a theme of when they're trying to find someone um, they're willing to pin on just about anybody until they get the right person. And that's a, that's a scary trend just from the outside looking in. I, I think there's a lesson there. And, and, and I think as, as the public, and it's something I learned through this, you know, being very closely involved with it is we need to be slower to judge and, and maybe quicker to serve. I think sometimes it's, you know, and, and this might be on a more ma macro level where instead of 
you know, believing what the rumors are about our neighbor, let, let's jump out and, and help him out. Uh, because, you know, Richard Reese, I mean, it was it was a slam dunk as far as the public was concerned, very similar to the case in South Dakota. Uh, and, and, you know, and it just wasn't. And, and I think in trying to solve these types of crimes, but also in trying to be a better member of humanity, we, we really need to be slower to judge. Yeah, it's, it's a weird mind frame because on some level you think, well, if the family did it, okay, but to push that to your point, if the family did it, you still need to find the little girl, right? So even if, so by finding the little girl, if she were to be dead in this case, she wasn't, thankfully, but if she were to be dead, you didn't help the family, you know, it, so it's, but it's it kind of a weird vantage point because you feel like you might be helping the criminal. Well, bringing it to light, whatever happened, isn't helping the perpetrator. You know, it, it, it's really true. And that that was a major focus. I think there are a couple of things going back as well. Uh, you know, one of our messages early on, that, that first week when the family was you know, called called out finally, um, was that they were doing everything that had been asked of them of law enforcement and, and that they would continue to do everything that, that they requested until Elizabeth was found and, and then got law enforcement to validate that, yes, they were. And that, that gave me some reassurance, but I think the public, you know, you just don't know, but I think there's some level of trust. In a case like this, you can't convince anybody until she's found, uh, you know, of, of who might have been involved or who might not have been involved. And, and so what you're really trying to do is, is, is give the best information possible to be as open as you possibly can to build some level of trust so that people, you know, they, they may not completely believe you you know, weren't involved, but at least they say, you know, they, they can see that you have some credibility because you are doing the things that you should be doing. That's always a key piece when I work with families. And, and, and a question that I look at very quickly as to whether or not I'm going to help them is, are they cooperating? Because if they're not cooperating, there there's there's questions and there's red flags there. Well, and then the other side, though, I can see a family going, yeah, we didn't do it, but cooperating might not get us the favorability that we're looking for. Like the, the cops might just not believe us. And so how, you know, so there's a tension there as well. It seems that if you know, you know, I didn't do this, I know I didn't do it, but by cooperating, they might not believe me. And therefore the public might not get behind me. I think it's, it's bigger than that too. And this, this was something that was, was just tremendous with the smart family, how incredibly courageous they were because we all have warts and skeletons in our closet, big or small. There's nobody out there. None of us are, you know, none of us are perfect. We all have made mistakes. And you know, when you start to cooperate that they are going to look in every nook and cranny and find out every possible thing about you. And that, you know, those who are a little bit more attuned or realize that a lot of that's going to become public. And the smarts made a very concerted decision early on that regardless of where things led that they would do whatever it took to find her. What I, you know, working with the media could be a double-edged sword. I mean, they could be their best friend and getting the news out and could be their worst enemy and in, in tearing them apart and uh, reporting rumors and speculation and very personal details of their lives. And, and they, they knew that. And they, they were courageous in saying, you know, we don't care. Take it on. You know, it's, if we, if we get her back, it's worth it. What's it like for the sister who sees this, pretends to be asleep, um, going through this period thinking her sister might be dead. I, 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 incredibly difficult. And, and, you know, and she's 10, 11 years old at the time. So she's pretty young um, and wanting to do everything she can. It wasn't just like her sister. They were like best friends as well. Even though there was a, a decent age difference, they were inseparable. So it wasn't just like, Hey, my sister's missing. It's like my best friend and 
you know, second guessing. I think there's always that survivor's remorse. Should I have done this? Should I have done that? Um, the advice that was put forth very early on was not to push her in any way. Don't ask her questions. If she wants to talk, let her talk. That's going to be the thing that most likely leads to her remembering something, which it did. And she was very heroic throughout it, but it was incredibly taxing on her. I think it still is. I think it, it you know, it's, it's something that, you know, impacts you for your entire life. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's one of the things that humans, we'd like to think we know how events would have played out if we had done things differently. And there are obviously some times where it's quite simple. Um, you you look down at your cell phone, you swerve off the road, you hit the tree. If you wouldn't look at your cell phone, you would have seen the curve. You know, it, you probably not hit the tree. But in these scenarios, it's not clear. She screams, maybe the killer cuts them, kills them. Right. Exactly. So it's, it, it, and it's so hard to think of what the right thing would have been to do because you are dealing with a deranged person breaking into your house. That person's crazy. Let's be quite clear. They are crazy. And, and God, I just can't imagine from the parents' perspective and all the emotions that they thought of because they're humans. They had like, oh, I wish you would have screamed, and I'm glad you didn't scream. And so it just, it just, it's just a nightmare. Well, and I, I think a couple of things here. They, 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 she did the right thing. In fact, it was called out recently in another case, and and really by uh, being that witness and by feigning sweep, you know, she may have prevented, likely prevented it being worse or somebody being hurt or killed in that situation. Um, you can't second guess somebody who's been through something. A lot of people have second guessed Elizabeth. Why didn't you try to get away? And, and until you've walked in those shoes, until you know what those circumstances are, it's really difficult to do. But I, where I give a lot of credit is Ed and Lois Smart, because they were very clear with Mary Catherine from the onset. You did the right thing. You did the right thing. Don't question it. We're going to do everything we can to find your sister. It's okay. Um, and, and and I think that's important. I, anytime we're involved in a traumatic situation that sometimes it's, you can't say that, but most of the time you want to reassure the person that they did the best they could under the circumstances. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because we've touched on this some on the show, not a lot, but I want to spend a moment here. The idea that we can think about what we would have done. Um, my favorite show is band of brothers. I watch it every year and every year I watch it. And I watch these people who were, uh, went through you know, all kinds of just chaos, you know, D-Day, Bastogne, and I sit there and I go, I, I don't know what I would have done, and, and I, I have no idea because I can see myself completely freaking out being shelled in Bastogne and not being mm -hmm. worth anything, and then I go, I'm not a coward. I wouldn't do that, and I go, here are dudes who are way tougher than me who they, they get caught up to eventually, and, and so we as the public tend to project what we think we would do in these situations and we really don't. And in, in, in this era that this happened, the on a daily basis, the amount of things that we could be exposed to is pretty slim. Whereas now you get on Twitter, you can see a fight breaking out or um, so, you know, all these things. And we, we start to project, oh, this is what I would do. Um, and I think that we overestimate how we would respond in these scenarios. Oh, there's, there, there's absolutely no question. And I think your, your point about social media proliferating you know, the, the, yeah, I would do it this way. And how could they be that dumb? And, and really, you can't second guess someone until you've walked in their shoes. And, and Ryan talking about Band of Brothers, it reminds me of another element of this book that, that's kind of the reason that it's called Unexpected. So we talk about the backstory of Elizabeth Smart. And, and part of it uh, also is my experience growing up next door to 
a hidden broken war hero with a secret. My next door neighbor was an alcoholic growing up. We had an acrimonious relationship would be an understatement. Uh, he was verbally abusive. We got in a fight at one point. He threatened to shoot me. We had a, a really, really rough relationship. And, and um, I, I decided to serve a, a mission for my church when I was 19 years old. And, and the day before I left, I went and just on a whim, knocked on his door to say goodbye. And he was shocked and, and went in and um, we talked for four hours and I learned his history. And I learned about landing on on Omaha Beach on D-Day and found out that he was in George Patton's third army and was fought in the Battle of the Bulge. And he confided that he in battle had killed a few men and that it had impacted him his entire life. And, and, and so I think there's this natural tendency to say, Hey, I would do that. Or this person, we label them as, you know, they, they weren't smart or they, they made poor decisions or whatever else. And until we really know, until we know what, who they are and what they've been through. And even then it, it, it's still questionable we shouldn't judge. Yeah. And I would just encourage people the next time you see something trending on Twitter and you watch the responses first, there's a lot of logical fallacies committed. Oh, well, either this happened or this happened. And then pause and, and um, think about epistemology. Like what, what do you actually know? Well, and you start thinking in this three minute video or two minute video, what you actually know, the facts that you know are, are not that many. You don't know what happened before. You don't know what happened after. You don't know any. And so you start thinking about what do you know and how much judgment can you put on what's happening here? And you start to understand that these are very complex situations. And then you go read the commentary on it. And you're like, oh, this person might be right, but but actually, he's just guessing on what he thinks might have happened here. And and. It, when you think about a scenario where a child's abducted and the sister is in the room and all this, you know, um, just to pause and reflect, if you're being honest with yourself, uh, I think there's going to be a a wide array of emotions. And and so, let's talk about the media for a second. Um, now, was was what's her name, Nancy? Uh, Nancy Grace? Yeah, Nancy Grace. Was was this during her era, or did she come along after that era? Because that was kind of the era of really sensationalizing these types of stories. So Nancy Grace was kind of coming up during this. So during this, okay. King Live, nearly every night, would cover this. And they had a panel with Mark Garagos and Henry Lee and Nancy Grace. And it, it was almost like, um, and I don't really watch the show, but I've caught it a couple of times. After the Real Housewives, they have the Andy Cohen show where they break down everything that happened in the show with this panel of guests. It was kind of like that day in and day out with the smart case. And Nancy was one of those that was talking about, you know, her take on it and, and you know, was taking it in lots of crazy directions. I think one of the extended family members said that it was reality TV that trumped reality TV uh, during her abduction. Yeah, and that is, um, I remember that that kind of era when when Nancy was probably at her peak. I don't know what she's doing now. I think she's doing something similar. Uh, but anyways, and if you again, if you kind of watched some of the commentary around some of the stories that she would be talking about, the the problem with kind of the the media angle is, I think Nancy pits herself as a advocate for victims. The the but the problem is when you think about that, that really doesn't mean a whole lot. It sounds good. And I'm not who's against victims, right? It sounds good. Right, right. But how that teases out in the stories, sometimes the victim is a defendant in a case because they're being wrongly prosecuted, right? Sometimes they are actually a victim of the case. And so it doesn't really mean a whole lot, but it sounds powerful. And so it, and so then you kind of double down on that narrative of the victim of the victim of the victim, which means if you're not the victim, 
you could be in the line of fire. And, and so kind of, I remember kind of watching some of her stuff around, I don't know about this case, but other cases for sure. Um, and, and it's like, man, ugh, we're really hammering home on people that we're not quite sure. And this story will end. The John Barry, John Benet Ramsey story, I mean, it's for all intents and purposes, they might find someone one day. But for the most part, the story's kind of gone. Um, but the people that were in that story, there's you know, there's some that are still living. I know, I think the mom passed away. Some were still living and they had to live with all the things that were said about them. And people who saw a show for 10 minutes one night and took that, and that's the perspective on them. There's probably people who don't realize Elizabeth Smart was found, right? And they they never really it. followed the story. And so they heard right. about it. They think right. whatever they thought. And so there's a responsibility that the media, I think, lacks in these stories. I am fine asking questions. I'm fine um, having discussions. But the day-by-day panel breakdown of what's happening in the case a case like this, there's probably really not a lot to say, to be honest with you. Oh, it, it's pure speculation. I mean, they're they're going off of what they can, but it, you know, I think it's been deemed infotainment, right? I mean, it, it there there's there's this curiosity, and I, I'm a big sports fan, and I think you know NBA uh, trade deadline was a few weeks ago, and and that week leading up to it, I'm I'm looking at every rumor, knowing that most of them are untrue, but I just I, I want to know, you know, is this going to happen or not happen? We have a natural curiosity, and those who can feed that curiosity uh, tend to make a lot of money, you know, and so oh yeah, you know, rumor or innuendo. When you're talking about sports, that's one thing. When you're talking about a family and a missing child, that's a completely different situation, though. No, it, it's it's a great point because if you watch um, Skip Bayless or um, Stephen A. Smith, two of the most popular sports talking heads, um, listen, they are masters of what they do. I watched a clip yesterday where they were arguing the top five NBA players with the most pressure to win a championship. And you would think they're talking about a congressional bill. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter. But it, it's, it's so if you can step out of it, you realize the brilliance of what they're doing. But does it matter if Chris Paul really wins one or not? Well, no. I mean, 100 years from now, no one's going to remember any of this. And so, but in that moment, they are debating it as if it's really important. And for that, it's fun. It's entertainment. It's cool. But to your point, when you bring it to just stuff that does matter, a little girl's missing or, or something like that, um, people do remember those things. And they do. it does shape how they view it, not only for that story, but for the next story as well. And so it's part of this narrative around the sensationalism. We talked about the kidnapping statistic early on. Well, part of it is because when these stories happen, they are hyped and they are sensationalized. And so you spend so much time on them. Really, it's like a plane crash. It's very rare that it happens, but we all fear it overly uh, 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 more than we should. It's our worst nightmare. Absolutely. So how did the family deal with that daily barrage of Nancy Grace or Larry King or whoever it was talking about things? Because on some level, I'm sure you... It would be rational to go, oh, they said that. Did someone tip them off? Is there someone in the department telling them stuff? Or are they making stuff up? And that could drive you crazy, I suspect. I think to a degree. So you know, there was so much, first of all. It was hard to keep up with everything that was going on. It was hard to keep up with the amount of, of, of interviews. And, you know, And Ed and Lois were a little bit less involved because they were taking care of their family and working directly with investigators, but they still did a lot of interviews. I don't know that they had a lot of time to watch things. Uh, I had a team, you know, part of my team and, and, and initially these were all volunteers. Uh, we were watching just about everything and, and trying to take it apart and understand it. And also telling them that we're watching everything. You don't need to worry about it. Let us tell you there's a lot of garbage out there. 
uh, and, and you know, and, and in your family in that situation, and I've worked with a number of families in crisis, don't watch the media, don't read the comments. It just focus on your family, focus on what you can do. And, and I think they did a relatively good job. There are obviously times that you can't do that, but it's just such a distraction. It, it, it doesn't help. Um, and, and again, they made that concerted effort too, that we're going to go, we're going to do it come hell or high water. We're going to take the bad and the good. And, and we know that there's going to be speculative talk and had to remind them that sometimes, I mean, because it, it could be hurtful if they were in an interview and, you know, to, it went to a highly speculative place. From your perspective, how do you advise you've, you've used that term a few times. Um, is it. Is there a playbook that you kind of have developed over, over, over the years? Is it kind of, you don't want to be overly, overly reactionary, but you kind of reacting to what's happening, a combination of both? So when I started working on the case, I was 29 years old, and which is super, super young to be handling a case of this magnitude. Uh, I had, and when I say I, I had a, a, a couple of business partners and a team that initially there were six or eight of us working on it. And after a couple of weeks, they went back to our clients and I, I took a sabbatical and, and worked on it for nine and a half months. But it was, I had some crisis communications experience and had, had worked around and on a few cases over the years, but nothing like this and, and had never been in the driver's seat. So it was a lot of you know, learning, uh, being resourceful, trying to figure things out. I asked a lot of media initially uh, on the side, we're waiting for an interview. Uh, you know, what happened with John Bonet? How did they handle that? How did the police handle it? How did the family handle it? You know, what lessons can I learn? So I was constantly trying to uh, learn as much as I could. I, I trusted my gut. Um, I'm a very religious person. I was constantly saying silent prayers, asking for help. And, and I do, I really felt like I was guided through through the experience. So what was it like leading up to finding her? Was it something that, that you guys knew was getting close? Did it happen really fast? What was that like? Uh, maybe even the opposite. Uh, I remember, so there's this, this extended smart family and, and an inner circle, of, you know, maybe 10, 15 people that were really involved in the, in the case and, and, my wife and, and I think the other women that were involved were like done, like guys, we got to, to the men. And I, I'm not trying to make this a gender thing, but it was like, guys, we got to give this up. We need to move on. You know, let's do what we can, but we need to focus on our jobs and our families. And the men are like, no, she's there. We got to find her. And it was reaching a point where it felt like everything was going to crack literally like that day, day before. And, and um, it also, it, there was this really tough situation. And throughout the case, the family had been very, very disciplined and not overtly criticizing law enforcement in the media because they knew that that wasn't going to do anything positive, even though there were mistakes and there were issues. You know, taking the high road didn't mean, you know, backing down, but just very, very measured in how they responded to that. And then on March 11th of 2003, Elizabeth's uncle Tom went to the Salt Lake Tribune and blasted law enforcement. I mean, just could not have been more vicious. And it's a front page story and the national media is now all over and, it, and it's causing headlines. And so uh, I had a meeting with Ed and, and, and Tom to plan uh, for how we were going to respond to this. We called a press conference for a couple of hours later and, and, and leading up to that meeting, uh, I got a call from Ed and he said, I've been summoned to the Sandy City Police Department, Sandy City being a suburb about 10 miles outside of Salt Lake. I've been told not to stop, not to talk to anyone, but I'm going to be late to the meeting. And so I just wanted to let you know, figure things out. I'll call you when I know something. And I said, well, well let me know. And, and, and fortuitously, 
the only person I'd kept in contact with from high school was a detective with the Sandy City Police Department. And so I began calling this guy over and over and over again. He finally picked up, was pretty was pretty rude with me initially, and and then called me back a little while later and said, you know, you kept calling and you were interrupting a major meeting. And, and they finally told me to answer it. And we brought in a, an indigent teenager that we believe uh, might be Elizabeth Smart. And I said, really? And, and I, I was trying to keep my composure and said, well, where did you guys find the body? And he stopped and said, what body? She's in the room right next to me. Wow. And I was able to get a hold of Ed Smart and let him know as he was they were waiting for him and let him know that she was there and, and, and waiting for him. So it was, you know, surreal uh, to have that experience. And, and the story didn't break for about another 45 minutes and sat there. At one point, I just sat on the floor and it's like, you know, Salt Lake's about to get hit with a tsunami. But it was it was unbelievable in the moment. OK, so I like the way you captured that. Where did you find the body? OK, so you, when you hear they found her. Your thought is she's dead, understandably so, based on what we talked about. What is that set of emotions that she's been found and you thinking she's dead? Because it's the normal thing to think. Is right. it? Is there relief? Is there, I don't know if joy is the right word. What? What is going through your head thinking, we found her, but she's dead probably? I, I think relief. There, there had been three periods over the months where at one point they found the body of a 14-year-old blonde teenager in, in a city about an hour and a half outside of Salt Lake uh, that initially looked like it could be Elizabeth. And another time they found some bare bones in a river that they thought were Elizabeth. Uh, and, and there was, you know, there were these three times and, and every time it happened, you know, your heart sunk. And there was a piece of like, I, I don't want this to be real. And there was a part of, gosh, this family's been through so much. Having answers would, would be amazing. And I think the rational brain kicked in there when I asked if there was a body. And there was a, you know, a sense of, okay, this is finally ending. I mean, this was taking a toll, taking a toll on my marriage, health, um, you know, the family. I, I wasn't the only one that was, you know, just going to extremes to try to find her. And so, yeah, I think in the moment, I, I don't even know how you process something like that, but there probably was some relief. And then, you know, understanding that she's alive was you know, speechless. I, I, it's indescribable. You know, it, it, it couldn't even comprehend it for a bit. Yeah, I can't imagine because you, you, you're sitting there going... Was there some doubt that she was alive when he said we found her? We think she's alive. Was there maybe some doubt? Like, no, it's probably a false alarm here to kind of temper expectation. So it was interesting because we had a resolution plan for if she was found dead or alive, in state, out of state, and all these different scenarios, and started to execute that once I talked to to my friend Jason Burnett and. Um, a couple of the family members said, yeah, that's that's fine and all, but we don't know, don't know if that's Elizabeth. So I called him back and, and he said, yeah, Ed was reunited with her and there wasn't a moist eye in the in the room. It was, you know, the most emotional thing any of us have ever seen. So we called back the family members and said, hey, positive ID, Ed's, Ed's hugged her. And the family members said, he's such a compassionate guy. It might be another teenager. Get us positive ID. I mean, that's how unbelievable wow. it was. And so we had a contact in the FBI that, that was a friend of Tom's and Tom called and said, we know all this. Is it true? And he said, yeah, it's true. It's her. Uh, so then we were able, I mean, that's just how, you know, as, as you talk about that, like, Oh, could it not be true? I mean, it, it took a while for, I, I, I was, I, I believed it when I heard it, I, I kind of took it at face value, but uh, several others in, in that inner circle were not as sure as I was. It makes sense. I don't know. Understandably, what I was doing. I was understandably, there, but it makes sense. Right? Like, 
to get your hopes up after nine months that this that this nightmare is over and it's ended in the best way possible to be crushed again would be devastating. And so you, you could see someone going, yeah, I, I want, you know, I want to wait to, to get more verification. What's been the process post-return? You mentioned the world slowed down afterwards. Um, now you're 20 years, you're, you're reflecting, you're writing a book. It ended on a, and I hate to say a happy note, but there's another term, a happy note relative to the story. God, it seems though post reuniting that there's probably more questions than answers almost. Sure. I mean, it wasn't without its challenges for sure. There, there were, you know, reacclimating. I mean, it was a new reality for the family. Um, you know, Elizabeth in, in essence became the celebrity that she nor the family ever wanted to be. Um, and in the same vein, over time, as she matured, saw it as an opportunity to be a voice for the voiceless and to really be a catalyst for, for something, you know, to take something just absolutely horrific and, and, and make it something positive and, and, and help others. So that, that's been a real positive aspect of it. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of introspection uh, from a, a law enforcement standpoint. I think law enforcement learned a lot from this, a lot from those mistakes from a media perspective, uh, you know, how a family works with the media, how the media can play such an important role uh, in finding a child and how the media can also <laughs> completely screw everything up by, you know, going down rabbit holes and and creating lots of speculation in areas. So I, I think a lot of good has come from it. But, yeah, there's still still a lot of questions. If you could go back during that period, knowing what you know now, is there one or two things you might would do a little differently? You might go this, I don't want to say solve it faster, but but help the family comfort or or you know, ask different questions. Something that again, you don't know what you don't know. You can't project, but now that you have gone through it, maybe there's some other lessons learned on just in the moment how to deal with that. So probably a couple. So about uh eight weeks after Elizabeth was abducted, um her there there was a, a strange break in at her cousin's house. So this when she was abducted, when Elizabeth was abducted, uh, the uh, the abductor entered through the screen, her outside screen, cut it with a, a knife, and and was able to get a hand in and break in. Similar things happens at Elizabeth's cousin's house, and it's not just Elizabeth's cousin; it's her best friend. Her name was Olivia Wright, and the police after it happened was like, you know, lie, do not, do not give the media anything on this, do whatever it takes to keep this. We've got to investigate this. And a, a few days after that, a, a reporter that I'd worked very closely with here locally, had a great relationship, pulled me aside and said, hey, I, I heard that there was this break-in at her cousin's house in, in the suburb of Taylorsville. And her cousin lived in the suburb of Cottonwood Heights. And I responded, I'm not aware of a break-in in, in Taylorsville. And he let it go. And it was a few weeks later that the story finally broke. And during that period, kind of the national media interest waned. And the police said, oh, we, we believe strongly it was a teenage prank. And I always thought if I could go back, I'm, you know, even though I was told by law enforcement, my client didn't want me to, to disclose that information. If that information had been disclosed earlier on, it would have been given a lot more uh, attention and credence. And I think people would have really looked into that. And it might have led a lot more quickly to Brian David Mitchell potentially being the person, not Richard Reese. Okay. The book drops March 7th. We're recording this before March 7th. I think this podcast will go out before March 7th. So, but it'll be close to it. So uh, the book comes out, uh, Amazon, 
Uh, we'll link to that. Is there anywhere else you want us to send people that want to dig into this case? They want to kind of know more about what you guys have done in, in your current work. Uh, a- absolutely. So um, I, I'm launching this today, so it'll be up by the time your podcast is up. But uh, ChrisThomasConnects.com um, is is a website. And I've gone in and, and and doing the research for the book, I watched hundreds of hours of footage and I pulled a lot of that footage. So as you're reading the book, there's a certain section you can actually go and see the interviews or you can see the press conference, different elements. I don't want to oversell it, but um, different elements that you kind of go back to that time and see what the search center looked like um, can really get a feel for not just reading about it, but seeing it and feeling it and, and providing some more commentary there. So those who are really deep into and, and interested in it, it, it provides, I think, a new level um, that, that readers will find very interesting. Okay. I've got that link too in the show notes as well. It's, it's up It's up right now. So I will put that in there for listeners. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's been a pleasure. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.